If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Colossians. The holidays are over, back to the grind, as I say. Uh, it is not a grind, it should be a joy for us, and certainly is a joy to be um, with you again. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to then be back in Colossians. We don't have very much left in Colossians. We've got this week and next to finish up chapter 3, and then we move on to chapter 4, which will actually go fairly quickly. So um, our study here is almost done, but we come to some very important verses uh, in our study this morning. And these are important verses not only because of their um, importance in our family lives, but because of their connection to what we've already studied So Paul has been talking in chapter 3 about putting on a new man, about being a new person, that if we have been dead in Christ and then raised in Christ to newness of life, how then ought we live? And he's given us some very general principles. So we can look back at verse 12 and we can read that we are to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We can read of these virtues that we are to have in our lives. But it is not until these verses that Paul begins to actually cement those things down in practicality. How are we to live these things out? Certainly, we could go to a number of places to talk about how we are to live these things out. We need to live these things out not only in our church body. So we need to know how to live for one another this way. We talk often about bearing one another's burdens. We need to know how to forgive one another, how to be gracious with one another. And certainly, we do that by living these things out. We could talk concretely about how to live these things out in light of the, the, the culture that we live in. How are we to be lights in the world and effectively communicate the truth in love? But it's fitting that while Paul could do that, here in Colossians, he runs directly to the family. It is the relationships that you have within your immediate family that sometimes need the most work. While we are closest to those people, and while these are the people that we love the most in the world, because of that, they are also the people that frustrate us the most. While there might be exceptions, generally speaking, you are no more you than you are with your family. They know who you are. You can put on a good face for other people, but they know. And if you're ever going to be truly what God has called you to be, you will first and foremost be truly that to those who are closest to you. So there's a good reason why Paul, after going through this long, sort of drawn-out argument about who we are to be in Christ, focuses now on the Christian family. So if you have your scripture with you, please open them to Colossians 3. We'll begin reading at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of our God. This is, for one particular verse, fairly contentious. And because it is contentious, maybe not in this congregation, but it's contentious in the world. And so because of that, before we even get to the four things that are noted on your handout there, I have five other things to say to you as a way of preliminary notes. And these hopefully will go quickly. They might not, but we need to address these things because this is so much against the way our culture views things. Okay? And so there are some brief things we need to say before we actually get into the text, although it will be about the text. Clearly, Paul does not place, and we need to know this going in, Paul does not place the same weight 
or baggage or implications from the word submit that the vast majority of people in our world do. As a matter of fact, saying this in the first century was not the countercultural bit. If there was any part of this that would have been against the culture at the time, it actually would have been verse 19 in the speaking of husbands to love their wives. Okay? The great emphasis on self-sacrificial love as the pinnacle of what it means to be a husband would have been much more countercultural than saying that wives were to submit to their husbands. So Paul doesn't have the same sort of baggage that we have. When, when certain people read that word submit, it screams to them not only of the evils that can exist within marriage, but of societal evils at large, including the same type of attitude being played out not only in abusive marriages, but also in racism and in all sorts of oppression across the board. Clearly, Paul doesn't think that. And so we want to sort of clear the ground. If we're going to be planting seed in hearts today, which is what we're hoping to do, that those, the scripture will use us and grow us in Christ, we need to clear out some boulders first so that our planting can be done well. The first thing I want to warn us against is the conviction that because the culture is going against this, we're going to end up sort of on the wrong side of history. There is a prevailing notion in our culture that by going against the culture, we're going to end up sort of on the wrong side of history. Now, not only is this a misreading of history, but it's also a misreading of Christian conviction. We shouldn't care what the culture says as long as we know what Scripture says. And we, we think that this is true and good, right? So our very understanding of what Scripture is speaks against the culture. We think that Scripture has been written by mostly men, probably all men, but guided by the Holy Spirit in their writing. So that Paul wrote what he wanted to write, but God so directed what he wanted to write so that he wrote what God also wanted him to write. It is God's revelation to us. It is God revealing himself and the way he has created the world to us. But we also know that the reason why God has had to do that is because mankind is sinful. So we would expect We should expect that at every twist and every turn, there will be something about this that sticks in our craw. There should be something about what Scripture says that is somewhat uncomfortable for us precisely because we are sinful. And I'm going to tell you, if it's not every time you read Scripture or most times that you read Scripture, if there's not something in it that kind of sits against what you think and believe, you probably aren't thinking through it enough unless you're uber holy. And then congratulations, good for you. But for most of us, there should be things in here that we, we read and we're like, man, that's tough. It's tough. And this is no different. It's just more obvious. Secondly, let us state categorically at the beginning that while submission today impinges on someone's equality and someone's value and someone's stature, that clearly was not the case for Paul. To read that women are to submit excuse me, wives are to submit to their husbands as though the wives were of less importance than husbands, frankly, is a reading into the text of what you think value is accustomed to. And secondly, it doesn't even read the text well, okay? So to give you a better picture of this, flip back a couple of books to the book of Ephesians. Now, while Ephesians is going to talk about husbands and wives, we're not actually going to deal with that bit of Ephesians quite yet. Okay? We're going to go to Ephesians 5, but we're going to look at verse 18. Now, if you recall what the end of what we preached last, or not last week, but three weeks ago, what that sounded like in 
Colossians, there was speaking of how we are to live in the world, including singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, and then doing everything for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find that this passage of Ephesians sounds a lot like that, but he adds one important verse in here. So look at verse 18 and read with me through verse 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that sounds almost, almost spot on for spot on what Colossians says, but he adds this in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the importance of that particular verse is that Paul expects all of us in some way, shape, or form to submit to one another. It doesn't do then to argue that submitting makes you less valuable because the math just doesn't work, right? How can you be less valuable than everyone else and everyone else be less valuable than you? That makes everyone less valuable and therefore they're all valuable? Wait, that doesn't make sense. So submission on its own does not mean that someone is of less equality. It doesn't mean that someone is of less value or that their stature is reduced within the kingdom. Okay? To read Paul that way is to misread Paul, and specifically to read the New Testament that way is to totally misread the New Testament. And we haven't even gotten to the Christological problems that would come with Jesus Christ submitting to the Father and then saying that that somehow makes him unequal with the Father. Major heresies and problems will creep up there, but we don't even need to go to that, that place yet. We can stay with what Paul says about women and men. Third, I want to make the case very strongly that verse 18 is about a marriage relationship. It says, wives submit to your husbands, not women submit to men. Now, Generally speaking, within Scripture, we are told not only in Ephesians, but places like Hebrews 13, 17, where we are instructed to submit ourselves to our leaders, right? There are specific groups and specific people and specific times that we are to submit to other people. We are to submit to the ruling authorities, Paul argues in Romans 13. My wife, outside of those general admonitions, is to submit to no man but me. She is under no obligation to submit to any one of you in anything other than the fact that she's generally to submit to one another and to the leaders of the church and to the ruling authorities in government. But you have no right as a man to tell my wife to do anything. Okay? We, need to, we need to say that very clearly because it becomes a situation where all women are sort of treated as though they are to submit to all men and that's not the biblical case. This specifically is for wives to submit to husbands, not women to men. Fourthly, we need to pay really close attention to who's being addressed here. I find this to be a problem with my children. When my children are to do chores, I will often find that one will stop their chores, whatever they are, to come and inform me that kid B is not doing their chores. Okay, And I will say, your troubles are enough for you, young one go do what we've asked you to do, and we will worry about Lucy later. <laughs> it's almost always the way it goes, right? So it doesn't do to read these verses and to read verse 18 like many people do this way. Husbands, make sure that your wives submit to you. That is not what the verse says. That verse is for your wife. You have a verse 
and you have a command, and it's coming up, and you are to love your wife, whether or not she submits to you, you are to love her. Okay? Now, there are, it does come a time when we have to go to Scripture and we have to say, listen, for your own good, you are not doing what Scripture calls you to do. Okay? So when it comes to children, yes, it's right for parents to look at their children and say, you ought to obey me, although that passage is actually written for the kids, right? It's addressing children. So there, there is a sense in which it's right and okay to come to somebody when they're not fulfilling their scriptural obligations to tell them that. However, primarily, you should be concerned with your part in this. There's enough here for you, men and, and husbands. There's enough here for you to manage on your own worry about your own chores, God will get around to dealing with the wife. Okay. And fifth, and probably most importantly, submit clearly does not include all submission. Okay. So this little tacked-on phrase here, as, it, as is fitting in the Lord, right? There was one way to read that that says, listen, submitting from a wife to her husband is fitting in the Lord. It works. This, this is what the Lord has called you to do. It's a right thing to do to submit to your husband. But there's another way to read it, which I think is also appropriate, which is you are to submit in a way which is fitting in the Lord. That is, you are not to submit in ways that are not fitting in the Lord. That includes when your husband wants you to do something that is sinful or something that goes against your conscience. This certainly includes that you are not to submit to his fists. Just ridiculous that people would read Paul that way, and they do. Nor any verbal abuse, nor emotional attacks. You are never to submit to that. It is an affront to the very image of God created in that woman. You are attacking the Lord when you do so. And I promise you very much from my heart, it will be dealt with in this congregation. And it will never be allowed to stand underneath the rubric of submitting to the husband at no point in time. From as much as the elders can do and under the law of the land, we will deal with it swiftly and accurately, as accurately as we can. It will never be permitted in this congregation. There is no reason to think that when Paul asks for a wife to be submissive to her husband, that that in any way, shape, or form opens the door to abuse. Clearly, even in the next verse, Paul outlines that that cannot possibly be the case because what does he tell the husbands? He says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay? So if you only read verse 18 and you say submission can lead to this, that's fine. But I'd ask you to go to at least the next verse and try to see how these two things fit together. At no point in time does submission mean that you are to submit in all ways, including to violence and sin. What does it mean, though? Wives, you are to submit. Humbly, meekly, willingly, submit to your husband's leadership. This doesn't mean, again, with things that it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you're not to use your gifts. Okay? God has given you a brain. 
He has given you a spirit. He has given you influence. He's given you wisdom. Sometimes wisdom that far outstrips your husband. Sometimes gifts that far outstrip your husband. And so you are to use those things. When we say that you are to submit, that doesn't mean that you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean that he is not supposed to know what you think and feel. Listen, if he is supposed to do things in love to you, he has to know you to do that. You have to open your mouth. You have to make him know what it is that your heart desires. God has given you to him as a helper that is suitable to him. You are not a helper suitable if you do not let yourself be known when it comes to the things that you think are right and wrong. Submitting doesn't mean that you are quiet. Submitting doesn't mean that you do not use the gifts that God has given to you. What submission means is that when the decision is made, you humbly, meekly, and willingly submit to your husband's leadership, knowing that God has put him in that position. In doing so, I, I want to emphasize so much that you, more than the, the husband ever will, provide structure and order to the house. These are not minor things. Egalitarians want to talk all the time about how well and how smoothly marriages work when everyone is considered equal, not only in authority, but also in ontology or who they are. Now, we would agree with the ontology part, but there is clearly an authority structure here. I'm going to submit to you very clearly that that just doesn't work. I don't know if these people are married or if they've never had marriages before, but if you are just submitting to one another, that means no one submits to anyone. Let's be very clear about that. If you are in a marriage and you come, listen, the vast majority of decisions between husband and wife, I'm going to guess, are everyone's on the same board, okay? At least my wife and I, we're just, we're, we're on the same pathway together for the vast majority of decisions. And so there isn't even a depiction of submission versus authority, right? Because we're both saying, yeah, we need to do this. This is a good thing to do. And there, therefore, there's no like, well, I'm saying we're going to do this. And Bree says, okay, well, I want to do that too, right? Like, that, that's, that doesn't look like submission because it's not. The problems that creep up, creep up when both parties want to do things that are opposite to one another. So if you are in an egalitarian and you think that both people have an equal responsibility to share that load, what happens? There is then and forevermore a clash, right? If you willingly submit or if he willingly submits, somebody has to willingly submit. And if they're not willing to submit or, you know, if you're just going to say, hey, everybody is on equal plane here, then there's every chance that you're going just going to butt heads about it and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. It is given to the wife to submit in those situations. This provides order and structure to the entirety of creation, going back to Genesis, but specifically in the marriage and in families. And you do not need to do much sociological studies to realize how important structure and order is, not just to kids, but to the health and well-being of married couples. It is incredibly important. It makes for, get this, happy marriages. So you are to submit, and to submit willingly, without grumbling, without complaining, without littering every glance with an I told you so when he is wrong, and women, he will most certainly be wrong, okay? You have to be 
able and comfortable to deal with that. He will be wrong, and he doesn't need you to tell him so. Sometimes he, he might, and so you probably need to mention that. But other times he probably doesn't need it, okay? It will be blatantly obvious to anyone with two eyes or even one eye that he was wrong, okay? So he doesn't need you to say that, but you need to willingly submit to him saying, I will go along with you, right? Husbands, then, you are to love. You are to love. First and foremost, this is a tremendous responsibility. If your wife is to submit, then it is your responsibility to make decisions. Your wife can come to you and say, this is a complicated situation and I don't know the way out. I'm not sure what the best course of action is here. You don't get that. There is no copping out for you. The decisions that have to be made have to be made. And if they have to be made, you have to make them. You bear both the privilege and the responsibility of being the head of that household. You cannot sneak out of it by saying, I don't know what to do. You might not know what to do, but you've still got to do something. And that burden falls on you. You are responsible. Harry Truman famously had that sign on his desk that said, the buck stops here, right? So that everything that was done in his administration was his responsibility. He knew that. The buck stops with you, husband. Every decision that is made in your household, every single one is your responsibility because you are the head of that household. If you go back even to Adam and Eve, there is a reason why, although Eve eats of that fruit first, throughout the rest of Scripture, all of Scripture unanimously points to Adam, Adam as the corrupter of the fall. Across the board, it was through Adam's death that all men sinned. It was because Adam failed. It was not because Eve did. Why? Why doesn't it point to Eve when she was the one who technically ate first? Because it was Adam's responsibility. As the head, it falls upon him. It was his failure, not hers. Secondly, <laughs> love is the key. There are a number of things that have to go into making good decisions. You make decisions based on what is best for your children, what is best financially. You make decisions based on, on what would be a, something to do that is in accordance with Scripture. But I'm telling you, husbands, in your decision-making as a husband, if you do not almost universally think through how does this decision affect my wife and what does it say about my love for my wife, you are doing it all wrong. I don't care how financially stable your decisions are. They are bad decisions if they do not, in their calculus, think through the effect that it has on your wife. You have to ask yourself, am I making a loving decision for my wife? Is this going to be a hardship on her? Is it a, is it a hardship that she should bear? Is it good for her to bear this? Or am I simply putting hardships upon her? If you are not thinking through how the decisions that you make from the budget to the calendar to the bedroom to the children to your career to everything, if you are not thinking through how those decisions in your headship are loving towards your wife, you're doing it all wrong. You are to give yourself to her. You are to bend yourself sideways for her to do everything you can to show and to demonstrate her that she is lovely in your sight, just as Christ gave himself for the church, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5. 
far from being a man who rules and lords over his wife. This commandment says that she submits to you and you, in a particular way, submit your life to her. He doesn't use submission, but man, it's hard not to read these verses and think that that's not part of what Paul's calling you to do. She submits to your decisions. You submit those decisions to her and to loving her and making it clear that you love her. Third, children, do what dad says. Children, obey. We all want our kids to obey. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. What Bree and I have found when we try to discipline our kids and try to help them in their obedience is that it's very, very difficult to not simply set rules and then say, these rules are here and you need to follow them. When we start to do that, it becomes very difficult for our kids to really latch on and want to follow those things. They almost resent that. Notice what the phrase puts here. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. I think that there are two ways that this pleases the Lord. One, the fact that we call our heavenly God Father tells you something about us as fathers and how our relationship with our children will model for them the way in which they will relate to our heavenly Father. And so their obedience to us, in a sense, will model their obedience to God the Father. If they are grumbly and complaining, if they are continually disobedient, that is, in a sense, the same way when they grow up that they will act toward their heavenly Father. And so it pleases the Lord. If you are obedient to your parents, it pleases the Lord because you will, not always, not forevermore, but you will be in tendency to be obedient to your Heavenly Father and what He asks you to do as well. But it's not just that. God does not just take pleasure in our obedience. He takes pleasure in our joy and what is good for us as well. And what we have found in our parenting to be very helpful is to make sure our children know that we want you to live this way because it's good for you. It's not just arbitrary, but it's good for you. Listen. When a two-year-old or a three-year-old throws a fit and they're angry and they're kicking and they're biting and they're banging and they're doing whatever it is they do, you know, you, kids, we watch America's Funniest Home Videos and they will have kids just being rampantly disobedient on there and people will find it funny. Listen, and a 15-year-old, that's a murderous rampage. It's not cute anymore. It's not cute so when we ask for our kids to be obedient to us, we try to get them to see that we're asking for their obedience, not because we simply want them to be quiet, but because it's going to be good for them. That selfishness built into you when you are a 19-year-old will boil and it will fester in you and you will be insufferable as an adult. You will lose friends. You will lose relationships. You will have your business life will be harder. Everything about your life will be more difficult for parents who do not discipline their kids and specifically for children who are unwilling to obey their parents in those things. It is good for you because it models your relationship to God, and it's simply good for you in the long run. Finally, fathers, you are to encourage. Fathers, encourage. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children. It's, 
the picture here is of an irritation. Don't be an itch that they can't scratch. Don't be a father who can never be pleased. Don't be a father who continually annoys his children. Not that fun kind of annoyance, right? Because there's a fun annoyance. And then there's just an ever-present annoyance that they can never please you. This has nothing to do with anything that I've pulled out of here, but simply my own life. I struggle with this. I find that there are three things, at least three things. There's probably like 28, but I'm only going to pick out the top three that I do that provokes my kids that I shouldn't do. And maybe this is something in your life as well. First, you tend to nitpick on inconsequential things, right? There are things that I just want my kids to do because, like, I want them to do it, man, because they bother me but they're really of very little consequence. And when we start being the kind of dads that that nitpick on everything that our kids do, it becomes very, very difficult for them to want to be obedient at all. Because again, they're left discouraged. They're left with the idea that nothing I ever do is going to be good enough for the man. It It discourages them and it does not model our Heavenly Father well. Don't nitpick on inconsequential things. Secondly, be consistent. Inconsistency. Wanting something one day and then being different the next. Being fickle in how you handle things. That's incredibly difficult for a child. If you are inconsistent with how you're parenting, with the things that you're asking your kids to do on a day-to-day basis, they don't know what to expect. And that sort of chaos builds into them the idea that, again, I can't do it. I, I don't understand what it is I'm supposed to do in this situation or in that situation specifically when it comes down to thinking that they know what to do when they clearly don't know what to do. We can think that things are obvious to us that are not obvious to our kids. And we can be very, very hard on them in those situations. And last, hypocrisy. Now, I'm all for the fact that as a dad, there are certain things that dads get to do that kids don't, okay? I want to eat a cookie at 3 o'clock, I'll eat a cookie at 3 o'clock. And I will do that because I'm dad, right? But there's also, there's also an avenue of that because I'm dad that is just rank hypocrisy that is filed under I'm dad, so I get to do it. Now, again, you have to be careful. You've got to use wisdom when you're addressing these things. But the main idea is that you are to make the obedience of your child as easy as possible. That doesn't mean that you flatten out all of the scriptural mandates and say, well, if I don't hold them accountable for anything, then obedience is real easy, right? But on the important things, you hold them to what is good and true, but you do everything you can to pave that road for them so that obedience is glad and joyous thing for them. It won't always be. There will be kicking, there will be screaming, there will be biting and gnashing of teeth from both you and your children. But do not provoke them, dads. While this passage of Scripture is good for all people, I think that that Paul writes these things because they're not simply the way he wants people to be, but it's because this is the way that God has designed people to be. I think that you can go back. We, we, I decided not to do this because of a time consideration, but we could go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and we could see how all of these things play out throughout Genesis 1 and 2. 
we can see how all of it plays out, how the woman helps provide structure and order to the chaos of a single man. That he is there and it's not good. And she is provided and it's good. We can go back and see how obedience is sort of built into what is good for people. This is good for everyone. It isn't just good for Christians. But it is important that this is the concrete example that Paul uses in in our union with Christ. What ought we to look like as Christians? How ought we walk? First and foremost, in your relationships to one another, this is what you are to look like. Not only is it a should, but it's an able. You should do these things, and Christians, you are able to do them. Christ has given you his spirit. He has so remade you that you can do this in humility and meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. You can do these things because Christ is working in you. You can do these things because this is the way that heaven will be in some way, shape, or form. We expect these things out of Christians. We expect us to live lives of holiness, but that holiness will always start at home, and it always starts with those people whom you are closest to. Strain for these things, Christians, not because they're nice things to have, but also because they're just good for you. They're good for your kids. It's good for your wife. It's good for your husband. And it's good for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, you are our Father. In Jesus, we are your bride. We know that we are connected in all of these things. We, in our human relationships, model in a number of different ways who you are, how you relate to us, how you relate to your son, how your son relates to his bride. All of these things are interconnected, Father. So it is not of little consequence that we talk about wives and husbands and fathers and children. Let us do these things well, giving thanks to you for your word. Let us seek to submit ourselves to your word and do what it calls us to. Not just because it is good for your glory, but because, Father, in your wisdom, you have made your glory good for us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.